Welcome to School of Movies, 300. There are going to be big changes coming to School of Movies starting with this episode. What we did in order to prune some of the poor podcasting practices we perpetuate is to go to our iTunes reviews for guidance. Not doing things people don't like is surely the best way to make something that everybody likes. So if we want to get more listeners, then the soundest way to do that is, of course, reading all of our one-star reviews, taking on board their grievances, and doing exactly the opposite. So we have boiled down the wording of all of these into a simple, focused, very clear and rational list of 71 don'ts with 10 do's thrown in there to highlight our alternatives. Now, this advice comes from, uh, should we say, less than 1% of our listenership, but there's always the possibility that they speak for the silent majority. We cannot rule out the possibility that following the advice of our harshest critics could make this new direction the most compelling and informative version of School of Movies for everyone. So we're going to go through the rules first. Um, We're probably going to have to make this quite quick because there are 71 of them, so... Number one, no more heavy political bias, please. That's a big one. Uh, Number two, never let emotion get in the way of looking at something critically. Okay, Uh, number three, never review the metatextual readings of the film as they will, checks notes, die in five years or less. Number four, no sound effects or snappy add-ins. They're annoying. I'm sorry, folks. I've been doing that for well over ten years. And and that's it. No, no more of them. Uh, number five, no ranting or complaining at length. It's juvenile. Number six, we are no longer permitted to criticize comic book licensed movies for ignoring the passage of time because comics themselves have done it for years. This is what I'm simplifying into the two wrongs make a right rule. Now, I'm skipping over a few numbers in this list to make it easier and quicker to get through and uh, easier to digest for you guys as listeners. Now, I would indicate the passage of time with a little blip sound that goes like this. But rule four is no sound effects or snappy add-ins. They're annoying. So I made sure this add-in was not snappy and I can't use those sound effects to indicate the passage of time. So it may be confusing moving on, but I think it'll be good in the long run. Number eight, we must never state our opinions as facts. Number nine, never self-promote my really bad writing like it's Shakespeare. Number 10, never self-promote full stop, even though that's exactly what independent creators have to do in order to raise awareness of their various projects. Number 11, no more self-important political editorializing. I think they mean my essays at the beginning of the show. Okay, so no more of them, folks. Number 12, no unironic discussion on how to be a good ally to women. So it must be ironic from now on. Number 13, no special announcements. At all. So there's no more Vital Update podcast where I discuss the new direction the podcast is going to go in. Whoops. Whoops. Uh, Number 14. No criticism as viewed through the lens of a personal relationship with the films. Okay. Uh, Number 15. We must set us... Oh, this is a do. We must set ourselves apart from the myriad of other pop culture critique shows and do something noteworthy. We haven't done that yet in 12 years. We've got to do something noteworthy for a change. Okay, number 16, no more vapid attempts at internet celebrity. Uh, Number 17, one from Pervy Punk simply says, can't fap to this, needs more Jar Jar discussion. So I suppose more Jar Jar discussion so Pervy Punk can fap to us. 
Number 18, no being supercilious and bloated. Number 19, no unearned self-importance. Number 20, Alex, don't be intrusive. Number 21, don't be hyperbolic. Number 22, don't be myopic. Number 23... I, I, ca- I, I can't not be myopic. I, I could take they the glasses mean, off. They mean... Um, oh, metaphorically. Metaphorically. Okay. Hang on. Are we allowed to use metaphor? Uh-oh. Oh, I think I we know. might be caught in a double bind here, folks. <laughs> but, okay, we'll, we'll, we will try. Number 23, no more lack of knowledge on the history of film. Number 24, no more being paid off by Disney. Damn! Number 25, no waffling. Oops. Number 26, no screaming. Oh, I was going to say, fortunately, today's film that we're going to be discussing at length has no reason to raise our voices at any time while discussing so, no. it. No, no, no. Uh, Number 27, no complaining about loud talkers in the cinema. They've got as much right to be there as everyone else. Okay. Number 28, no more crying at the cinema over films we care about. Number 29, no pearl clutching over the representation of women in film. It comes off as over-the-top and dramatic. Number 30, no being so far up my own well-intentioned ass that I don't ever see how insufferable I appear. Number 31, this is another do. We didn't start a school in real life. Don't call the podcast School of Movies. So, suggestions for a new podcast name on a postcard, please, folks. Okay, number 32, don't choose not to cover a movie because you really don't like it anymore. Do it anyway. Number 33, it's important to note that our decision to not cover Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them back in late 2017 was unfounded anyway. Johnny Depp was innocent, Amber Heard was the real villain all along. Number 34, so no more crocodile tears unless I'm prepared to investigate the private lives of everyone I choose not to podcast about, which, by the way, I can't not do anymore. Number 35, like Buffy more. Just watching a few seasons isn't enough. I have to watch and like all of it. Number 36, don't be pretentious. Number 37, no random music during podcasts. Number 40, no acting like my opinions are facts and anyone from the other side is evil. Number 44, no more mental gymnastics to justify opinions. Number 47, no random self-promotion of unoriginal content. Number 50, no throwing all of classic cinema in the dumpster. I've really got to stop doing that. Number 51, a big one that put this guy's back up. No politely suggesting that people unsubscribe if they aren't liking what they're hearing, even though that would just make everyone's life better. Number 52, no more millennial myopic viewpoints. We're we're Generation X. Just. Just. Number 54, no promoting my own projects. Again, the same thing. Like, don't talk about this thing that no one would know about unless you talked about it. Number 55, make the voice acting in New Century less subpar. Ouch. Number 56, no serious tangents or rants. Number 57, no more swearing. That's going to take a lot of work. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Especially right now. Number 58, no being sure that our opinions are the only right opinions. Number 59, no more hate watching. We're doing it wrong. Number 60, no awkward breaking away to discuss politics in films where there is no place for political discussion, e.g., and I specifically re-included this one, even though it's reiterating the same thing everyone else is, E.g. The Emperor's New Groove. That one made Sharon scream. Oh, no, no, scream. She's not allowed to scream. Can't but scream. She screamed before the show. I think we were allowed to do that, right? Okay. okay. Am I allowed to scream in real life? Uh, in real life, IRL, yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. okay. Uh, number 61, no more being immature. Number 62, no dick jokes. Number 63, no impressions of the Joker. Now, I love this because they didn't say no impressions of anyone. There has been no ruling that I can't do any impressions. <laughs> Just not the Joker. And this is 300, and there's Gerard Butler in 300. Ooh. 
I've been dying to do a bit of Gerard Butler. <clears throat> Although I can't be immature or do any dick jokes with it. Number 64, no more being snowflakes. Number 65, no more obviously only having liberal standards. We have to have other standards as well. Okay. Number 66, don't remind people we disagree with a film, even though it was made at a time with different moral standards. So... Talk about it. Say it was made at a time with different moral standards, but don't tell people we disagree with a film. So assess it only with the moral standards that were present in the at year the of its release. Okay. okay. Well, right. but at the same time, perhaps they mean that you're not supposed to have liberal standards, as in a lot of them, to be very liberal with them. Ah, good So boy. perhaps we only have to have very few standards. <laughs> but how can we have very few standards with all these rules? That's true. The film in question, made in a different age, uh, it was Stephen King's It. Which and was... we were talking about the child orgy. And we were just like, that wouldn't work on film. And right. we're glad it wasn't in any version of It that we've the... seen. Okay. And apparently that Aside... infuriated this guy who needs to see child orgies. Aside from the fact... So don't be the... prudes. Child orgies were happening all over the place in 1984 the when the book film, was written. The film came out, or the, the TV show came out in 1990. The, the moral standards of 1990, I'm fairly sure, are not wildly dissimilar to those of today. And the book came out... In in 1985? Okay. 1984? However, the flat rule is don't remind people we disagree with the film even though it was made at a time with different moral standards. Number 67, no more one-upmanship. Number 68, we must read between the lines. Stop questioning these movies. Mm -hmm. Number 70, do not be smug and annoying. Number 71, stop bad-mouthing other people's work if we're not going to create stuff for ourselves. And if N we are? Going to create stuff for ourselves? Don't promote it. We went all the way back to our first bad reviews, all the way through this list. Uh, and uh, that person was saying it before I went on to do New Century. Okay. So uh, he, was, he was saying, what has he done apart from Batman Breakdown? As it turns out, even if I create stuff, I'm not allowed to self-promote it. Mm. So I'm somehow trapped in a weird Catch-22 situation where I can't badmouth other people's work if I'm not going to create stuff for myself, mm -hmm. but I also can't tell people that I've created that stuff so, to allow me to badmouth other people's work. So create, but don't talk about it. Read between the lines, but don't overanalyze. Okay. Uh, number 72, no turning into children. Uh, number 74, we must now give movies we don't like the time. That's similar to the one about yeah. Fantastic Beasts. I, I like Fantastic Beasts. I just decided at the time I didn't really want to talk about it. Number 75, don't present like I present. Number 76, no lumping of anyone who hates The Last Jedi in with the sexist, racist troll crowd. Number 77, no endless poetry. That's the Dylan Thomas over Howard Shaw's Lord of the Rings score. I did that once. Uh, number 78, Black Panther and Captain Marvel were not without problems. That must be clearly stated. Number 79, it is important that we all accept that the script for The Last Jedi was bad. Number 80, in light of angry fanboy backlash over a film, we should potentially reconsider our own personal feelings. We had to read and reread this sentence repeatedly to work out what they were asking us to do or not to do. I was like, hang on, are they telling us to stick to our guns even though there's backlash? Or are they telling us to not stick to our guns because there's backlash? Mm. Well, it sounds like that that 
suggestion is actually what we're here to do today, where, yes. you know, you were taking on board that criticism and that backlash and then trying to move forward with it. That's mm. very true. And finally, uh, number 81. If Sharon is to voice her opinion, she must see every film. And since we are no longer talking about subtext or politics, that should be a lot simpler because all we will have will be the text of the film itself. Unless we're reviewing uh, The Emperor's New Groove, in which case we can't use the text because there are elements of the text which are very specifically political, which we're not allowed to do anymore. Okay, so the movie we decided to take this new approach to deconstruction on is 2007's 300, directed by Zack Snyder. So just let me consult my moral standards of the time encyclopedia. 2007. Page back to 2007. Go all the way back there to the, just bef- the end of the Bush era. Mm-hmm. Welcome back to the show, Lauren Grieve, one of our favourite guests for discussing subtexts and political readings of the art that we cover. Thank you so much for allowing me to be here, and I'm really looking forward to carrying these rules into the future. No music. So, 300. This was a film made by Warner Brothers. It is called 300. It cost only $65 million and it made $456 million. We begin with a bed of skulls at the bottom of the mountain, the mountain that the Spartans throw their babies off. This eugenics did historically happen. Aside, can we use the term eugenics because it is rather politically charged? Well, what's it called? Baby killing? Well, it was more culling of the week, really, yes, culling is what of the week. it was. Okay, yeah. can we call it culling of the week instead of eugenics? I think, judge rules, we can call it culling of the week rather than eugenics. Okay, right, because the Spartans were all about the biggest, strongest men. Yes. And if they did away with any baby that looked like it might not be the biggest, strongest man, that meant that they gave the best chance possible to all the, uh, the, the young Spartan boys who would grow up to be big, strong men. Practically, it's, it's sensible. Therefore, it's morally correct. So. Okay. Absolutely. Well, just, the important just, thing is that we can boil it down to just looking at it logically. Mm. Yes. Well, and, and logically, to go back for just a, a brief moment, if I could, the, uh, the fact that this movie did so well financially would imply that it is um, morally correct good entirely from start to finish because it Hmm. did Hmm. it it made money and we all know that the more money something makes the more money someone has the more morally and ethically founded that they are this is why michael bay's transformers films did really really well and nobody saw Booksmart or kubo and the two strings right correct okay So um, then boys fight one another in savage combat. They punch each other in the face. They bleed and their lives are hard. Mm -hmm. This Mm -hmm. could be seen as a kind of extension of the culling of the week where not only did they have to cull literally the weak, but they also had to cull the weakness in themselves. Yeah, they had to punch it out of each other. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. They are taught that service to Sparta is the greatest glory that they can achieve in life. Uh, They are taken age seven and plunged into a world of violence. Uh, They're forced to fight and steal and kill. Steal? Is that one of the cardinal virtues of the Spartan culture? Yeah, they are deprived of food. If they want to eat, they've got to steal steal it. Just well, like, they have to. Like a champion man would steal. Okay. It's to teach autonomy, you know. You have to take what is yours. Got it, got it. Okay, yes. right. 
Uh, they're also beaten because beating children is right. They, uh, this makes them strong, as we see later. Young Leonidas meets and fights a wolf. Right. I'd just like to raise a question here. And I'm, just, just to clarify, this is not my opinion. Okay. Um, or, sorry, no. This is, this is a, a question. I'm seeking an answer here. Okay, be careful. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to state anything as fact. Right. I'm, I'm querying. And but, if you did state something as fact, it is very important to note that it is just... An opinion. Yes, but that's that's not what this is. This is a question. Okay. Um, so they have stated that babies which are weaker are effectively not allowed to live. That children who are weaker in combat ultimately will be defeated and they will ultimately be not allowed to live either. Uh, Leonidas, as I understand it, and please correct me, please, please do correct me if I have misunderstood this, but Leonidas is is weak at birth, isn't he? Is he? Was he was it said that Leonidas is born he's weak? Not the strongest of the he, babies. His father punched him, and he punched him back, but only with a weak babyish arm. I believe was the exact word uh, wording of from um, Delios. Yes, that's the one. So have I? Have I misunderstood that? <clears throat> I, I, I don't remember. I think uh, that um, that most children are born with tiny, thin muscles, mm. and they have to really work out to get that jacked. Mm. Yeah, that's part of where the, the the punching of the children comes into play. It, it really <laughs> strengthens the muscles. Gotcha. Um, so when they cause... hold up the baby by the ankles, this is so that the baby can do leg pull-ups. <laughs> yes. Yes. Of course. Well. You never want to skip leg day, is what we learn from the very beginning of this movie. And I think that's very important, that we can all take on board. Okay. (laughs) Right. Zack Snyder appears here to be uh, subtly influenced by Robert Rodriguez's film Sin City, which uh, was also written by Frank Miller, who is a man who writes comics, including Daredevil. And the Dark Knight returns. And holy terror. Zack Snyder uses a palette of black and gold, and later some red. This evokes ancient Greek legends. The Spartans tend to live quite simply, unlike the gaudily attired Persians that we meet later. Spartans decline to decorate their rooms or wear complex armour. One might say they favour a minimalistic way of life. So the Persians appear to offer King Leonidas friendship, provided that he kneels to their leader, the Emperor Xerxes. The Persians are all bad men. The messenger doesn't like it when women talk. But Spartan women are permitted to talk. Leonidas dislikes Athenians because they are boy lovers. Spartans did not love boys within the fiction of this movie and comic book. Then they kill the messengers. A person may like to derive an ironic tickle from their defiance of a very well-known idiom, or they might not. It is up to the individual viewer. Either way, they slaughter the men in slow motion, which may heighten the excitement for some viewers. And they demonstrate the don't skip leg day. Yeah, by kicking a man into a pit. Mm. That's very good. I didn't even realise that they were uh, referencing back to the leg up scene. Yes. Leonidas goes to visit the important Eofer leper priests who live up a mountain with their sex child oracle, who dances in slow motion for us, erotically. No, hang on. Hang on, erotically is an opinion. Who dances in slow motion just in general? Her, her, uh, her boobs are out for someone's pleasure. Mm. Perhaps not yours, perhaps not mine, but someone, I'm sure, They just appreciated... happen to be out. Yes, but... Uh, I bet some people appreciated the contouring. Hmm. People may also have appreciated the fact that these leprous Eophers lick her with rotting tongues. 
They have been secretly bribed by Persia and appear somewhat unpleasant. Their decaying bodies, symbolic of their corruption. Careful. Quest- oh. mm. Mm. Okay. Symbolic. They have decaying bodies. They are also corrupt. That yes. is a truism. Okay. Yes. This scene features impressive use of the wet for dry technique seen in a movie that we discussed a while back, back in the good old days when we could talk about subtext. Shape, Shape of, of Water. water. Mm. Yes. Ah, yes, yes. That was a wonderful film. Allegedly. A big black Persian cackles as he offers the diseased priests more stolen innocent young white girls to lick, suggesting that Xerxes is not entirely a benevolent ruler, question mark. But a very rich one, and therefore morally upstanding. Yes, he has money with his face on it, so, you know, he must be important. But hang on, we're getting confused here, because we're supposed to dislike this guy, aren't we? Hmm. Well, not yet. See, I think the film is showing us that they're, that both sides are right. potentially morally appropriate and that whenever they come to, to a head, we find out that for other reasons, the Persians are inferior to the Spartans. Right. Okay. And then we, well, we root for the Spartans at that point um, because uh, we find out other things. But right now, I think we're supposed to think- be on the fence and be uncertain as to who is the right person well, you, you can't even really can, can we really even make a assessment at the end as to who was right of any film really it, it is worth making an observation that there's a lot discussed at this point about tradition and about the laws that sparta lives by and to date Leonidas, as the latest in a long line of Spartan kings, has accepted this practice of the priests having young girls to lick and hasn't done anything about it. And that's fine. So that the, the fact that they haven't tried to change it because it is tradition would suggest that up to this point, it's acceptable. I believe it may be the introduction of the money that mm. makes it questionable however the the tradition and the tradition is very important of course as we all know the tradition is that they have to that the spartan kings have to follow the um licking decaying men's what they say what they decree so that uh in the rest of this film when leonidas goes out and stands against and and attacks uh unjustly the Persian army, that, that act of aggression should be seen as inappropriate, given the traditions of Sparta. Mm. Yeah. Isn't it nice, just, just again as an aside, and, and I don't want to make this political in any way, but isn't it nice that we don't have to listen to the instructions of corrupt, licking, decaying men anymore? Yes, it's, it's quite nice that we've moved on from that to a certain extent. Yes. Leonidas is troubled and consults his wife, Gorgo. She tells him to ask himself what a free man should do in these circumstances. He fucks her six ways from Sunday. I did notice something very interesting about this scene, though, because in the background, whenever he is standing um, erect and erect for our uh, viewing interest... The moon is at least half of the scene, which is far too close. And as we know, logically, should have been pulled into the earth, killing everyone. So we have to assume that this is a an abstraction 
uh, or that this is possibly an alternate Earth and not uh, and not an actual documentary. Is of there history. the fanfic to explain this alternate Earth? Well, I know that there is a sequel, but since we are only speaking about this film, I hmm. did not watch it. So perhaps they explain in that one why the moon is ten times the size it should be. <laughs> But uh, as of now, we can only leave it as some kind of trivia or goof in the background. Perhaps their pre-production used the wrong telescope to see the size of the moon. It's certainly possible. They they may have been trying to use its prominence symbolically, possibly to represent the wolf. No, no, no. But we can't we can't assume that no. they use oh, anything symbolically. Absolutely. No. We can only assume that the moon is in fact ten times the appropriate <laughs> size in this in this world, in this universe. But I do find it interesting that we don't see the moon again, meaning that it must also go very slowly around the Earth, which maybe that's a function of it being so large. Leonidas assembles an average of three hundred men. Whether we see 300 on camera or not is by the by. To go and take on the Persians against the wishes of the council of beard-stroking, tongue-plucking city fathers. His soldiers include a young Michael Fassbender. His captain has brought one of his sons who is too young to have felt a woman's warmth. One Spartan holds a musical instrument composed of two sizable flutes aloft and enthusiastically blows upon them both as they walk. They do walk in slow motion, which I think is important. So let us see the soldier enthusiastically blowing the very large flutes. There is there is a substantial amount of slow motion in this film. And I can't help but wonder that regardless of its employment as a, a legitimate film technique for some symbolic purpose, how long would the film actually have been if everything was played at proper speed? About an hour? There's a lot of slow motion. The episodes were running up to eight minutes under, and we tried to keep the slow motion away from the dialogue as much as possible. But anything without dialogue was considered for slow motion. No clips. Really? No, I think it's I think it's about the same because they usually juxtapose the slow motion with speeded up motion, fast oh, motion, point. if you will. Okay. So I think I think it comes out in the wash. But I think an important I don't element... recall a single moment when that gentleman blowing both massive flutes at the same time in slow motion then suddenly sped up and no. oh, but there's plenty of fast motion later. But I think an important element is that those are Spartan flutes and they're very large so that you can, while you're playing them, also get your arm crunches in. Ah yes. That way that way they can maintain because after all, playing a flute would be a very uh, not a very strong masculine thing to do. Mm. So you have to do something to make it part of your gym routine. Yeah, that makes sense. Before we get folks pointing us in the direction of it, we are well aware of Jim Sterling's entirely objective review of Final Fantasy Thirteen. It most definitely inspired this new change in our style, and we wish more production artists would just look at the facts and mechanics and keep their politics out of our entertainment. Also, I am contractually obliged to tell you that The Last Jedi was a huge disappointment to everyone except SJWs, and it killed Star Wars. The Spartans discover a village of slaughtered Greeks and then stand watching the Persian fleet get destroyed in a slow-motion storm and laugh a lot. All except Leonidas, who doesn't find it funny. Which the narrator points out to us, which I really uh, just appreciated, just so I could understand where the scene was going. Yeah, it's important that we we prize stoicism as the most cardinal of virtues. 
It's why he's the king and everyone else is merely his follower, that he is he is stoic and strong and doesn't skip leg day. <clears throat> there is sort of a uh, a structure to the Spartans. You've got the the general populace who, while Spartan, um, are less imposing than everyone else. And then you have the senate or like the the group of politicians mm-hmm. who the tongue plucking city fathers yeah, yeah who while spartan are not as mentally strong and or stoic certainly not as physically strong as they? everyone else and then you have the the 300 of the personal guard mm-hmm. who while spartan are not quite as strong and stoic as leonidas and then you have leonidas who is the strongest top of the pyramid the strongest spartan that ever was despite coming from scotland Hmm. but but he did train like a spartan i noticed on the imdb tribune that uh he spent four hours a day every day in the gym for four months to prepare for this role so that means that he had a very spartan-esque gym cycle. Mm. Uh, And I do also want to point out that there is another contingent of Greeks from other places that joined the 300 at this Mm. point. There were Athenians and Arcadians. Yeah, mainly Acadians, I believe. And there is an untold number of those, I believe, from looking at the Wikipedia page of the Battle of Thermopylae, which this is heavily based on, practically a documentary. Yeah. Uh, there were several thousand well, well, uh, of them. Sorry, it's, it's not so much practically a documentary, Lauren. It's as though Zack Snyder was back there with cameras. That's, that's how factually I, accurate this whole thing is. That's why I say it was practically, because we don't have any shots of the actual Spartans there, but we we know that this is slavishly appropriate for the actual history. And Leonidas, knowing that those other Greeks are inferior, because they're, I mean, after all, he asks them, and they are sculptors, and they do art, they create things, which, as we know, isn't a very masculine activity. Mm. And it's pointless, largely, as well. Ultimately pointless, because that's not going to let you kill any Persians in battle. So all other than the 20 that he later asks to assist in a combat, uh, he makes sure that the rest of them, the other several thousand, sit off on the sidelines, presumably to watch and uh, whittle something. Queen Gorgo must contend with another corrupt fictional Spartan politician named Theron. Gorgo says that freedom isn't free, it costs folk like you and me. Stelios confides in an Arcadian uh, that he is looking for a noble death. He's really looking forward to it. He laughs in an intense fashion as he says this, which scares the Arcadian. A preening Persian turns up and is affronted that they have crafted a wall out of large, round flagstones and the fly-blown corpses of Persians. He tries to whip Stelios, but Stelios activates bullet time and cuts his arm off and tells him they are happy to fight while lots of arrows come down upon their heads. Ephialtes, speaking of monsters, the deformed Spartan with a hunchback, asks if he can fight. Uh, Leonidas tells him his weak shield arm will endanger the unit. Instead of fighting, he should tend to the wounded. Ephialtes is infuriated by this decision and betrays all of Greece to Persia. I, I find it very curious because, as we learn in the beginning, anything that isn't the embodiment of peak physical condition should be annihilated, uh, slain, perhaps. And in this moment, uh, King Leonidas lets him walk away. And I just was very curious as to why he didn't just stab him dead on the spot. Just for being ugly. 
Of course, of course, for for having a hunchback and everything. Just very unkingly behavior is very confusing to me. You know, it just occurred to me that I bet what the problem was is that Ephialtes only did leg day, and that's why he couldn't lift the shield high enough. So he may have made the first round of uh, what do, calling of the week and uh, then ran away before the second round of punching occurred. So, so he was a baby with inordinately overdeveloped legs. At least good enough that he was stood on par with the rest. But then, you know, again, the dangers of skipping leg day or arm day, you have to make sure that you're well balanced. That's what this, that's the real takeaway from this film, yeah. I think. So he only did leg day and hump day. It is important to note that uh, Ephialtes was treated kindly by Leonidas, but he probably shouldn't have because as the thesis of this movie appears to be, don't treat ugly people like people, they'll betray you. Yes, absolutely. It just seems very unkingly. I was confused by that behavior. To show mercy to someone who wasn't actively harmful to you Mm. yet. Mercy, um, an uncharacteristic trait of Spartans. Yeah. Yeah. There's also an element there of, despite him being a king and incredibly strong and incredibly virile and incredibly good at battle strategy, Mm -hmm. um, he seems to not quite have a grasp on the principle of putting the right person in the right job. So he is very clear about the fact that Ephialtes is um, inadequate in the lifting your shield above your head job, but is quite happy to have him tend the wounded without making any inquiries as to whether or not he has any rudimentary medical skills. Mm. I think that was... It it almost seems like that would have been thrown in by uh, Delios in uh, the storytelling. There is actually that framing device Mm. in this movie. I do think that Leonidas is is telling a joke there, though, because as we all know, Spartans don't get wounded. wounded. Of course, they don't get wounded. And if they They, do get wounded, they certainly don't get tended. Absolutely. They either either come out scot-free or die on the battlefield, as is right and appropriate. Mm. So I think he was trying to, like, tell a little joke there. Okay, so the next scene, the Spartans, led by their leader, CrossFit Shrek. They fight more Persians? Obviously you were being flippant. Shrek does not appear in this film, uh, dear listeners. Shrek was much later in um, chronology chronology than... uh, Yes, there was the Shrek Age, which came just after the Dark Age, but before the Age of Enlightenment. Yes. Of course, of course. They fight more Persians amid a sequence that shifts from extreme slow motion to slightly faster than normal, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, They are made to look cool if you think this imagery is cool. If you don't, then your experience will differ. Leonidas meets with Xerxes, who is a giant with a very deep voice and lots of jewellery and piercing eyes and an androgynous air. The emperor lays his hands on Leonidas's broad, bare shoulders and the two admire each other's muscular, bronzed chests. Snyder said in an interview that the thing that preoccupies, even terrifies, 20-year-old boys is a giant god-king who wants to have his way with you, with his enormous, godlike, throbbing love hammer. I believe that's Snyder's exact wording. Um, Hmm. these boys would likely go on to demand the Snyder Cut be released. All of the Spartans enjoy time with each other in their underpants. They oil each other's chests and talk about swords at length. Stelios and Astinos jibe at one another. One is called a woman, even though he is in fact a man, and the other is accused of offering his backside to the enemy, which he did not do. They are good friends. Let me just try that one again. They are good friends. I, I believe that that is what um what today we would call locker room talk. 
Oh, yes. I think that is, yeah. That's just locker room talk. And you can Mm -hmm. just say pretty much... Locker room talk basically means you can say whatever you want. Mm. And I believe that's a fact, so we're not being hyperbolic here. Absolutely. You can can speak... uh, Because what happens and what you say in a locker room stays in a locker room, especially Mm. while you are handling large spears uh, with your best friend. Yeah. And there should be no repercussions of things that happen in locker rooms, and we shouldn't talk about them. Uh, Neither should we acknowledge that there are repercussions of what we do and say in the real world. Absolutely. The Spartans fight some immortals, some orcs, and a giant from Mortal Kombat, plus a rhino, several elephants, and a giant obese man with axes for arms. Here, Snyder and Miller have chosen to diverge somewhat from historical accounts in order to lend a heightened parabolic state to proceedings, as though we are being told a story, one with a very definite political intention at its core. This is accentuated by the framing device of the tale we are being told by David Wenham's Delios. Leonidas's captain's son is killed in battle, which surprises and greatly upsets the captain, as he expected his son to live through this suicide mission. He later tells Leonidas that his heart is filled with hate for their enemy. Leonidas says that that is good. I am again left wondering whether this is some kind of plot hole and or gaff, because the captain explicitly says as they set off, uh, when Leonidas says to him, why are you bringing your son with us? Uh, He's too young, that he has other sons to replace him, which at that point would indicate that he was fully expecting to lose his son. And yet he reacts with surprise when it happens. Also, we've been told repeatedly that the Spartans are looking for a really, really good death. I think he's most angry because his son gets punked from behind suddenly and unexpectedly. Mm. It wasn't a good enough death. Right. So it wasn't a good Spartan death. Or perhaps he is uh, crying and and, and upset because his son got to experience the good death before him. And that's why he throws himself in because he's trying to to make up for that lost time. He's jealous. I think that's what it is. Envious. Yes, of course. At this point, we are now in danger of violating rules 68 and 69. We must read between the lines and stop questioning these movies. So I'm not going to 69 these Spartans. We are told that in this corridor, now full of grenades being thrown by Asians with covered faces and eyeshadow, that numbers count for nothing. We must believe this speech because we have no external reason to doubt the narrator. Of course. Ephialtes, the deformed Spartan hunchback, is led into Xerxes' orgy tent filled with women with deformities and a goat who plays the banjo. I'm fairly certain that 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 this isn't just the first film outing for Michael Fassbender, but also the first film outing for, for Black Philip. Black Phillip. Mm. So it's it's very important to recognize when filmic greats are on the screen for the first time. And he's quite talented with that musical instrument. I don't believe so. put subtitles up, but he may have whispered as Ephialtes entered the tent, Wouldst thou like to fuck deliciously? No swearing. I wouldn't be surprised. Did the witch come after the Shrek age? I believe The Witch, much like 300, is a uh, a documentary made after the fact. So I think the events of The Witch occurred before the Shrek age, while the movie itself came after okay. the Shrek age, which is important to understand to understand that film. But we're not talking about The Witch at length today. Perhaps at another time, we can live deliciously together. We could, just off the top of my head, speculate that the film is in fact very much pro 
people of irregular body types uh, because of this uh, orgy tent because it's it's we're very much on side with all of these um, enslaved sex workers. Well, yeah, it's 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 a surprisingly good film for uh, disabled people, really, because they're they're showing to be doing good work and they are they are helping the various uh, goats movers and shakers of the the persian empire which we we know has been previously established that they have a lot of money and therefore are morally upstanding mm. and also further evidence to this effect is that delios is I'm, I'm skipping ahead a little bit here um but delios is permitted to be a storyteller in spite of the fact that he only has one eye yeah. yes yes true back to F.E.L.T.'s The Monstrous, Treacherous Hunchback. He's offered a lot of sex in exchange for information on the enemy. Uh, Xerxes says that Leonidas was cruel for asking this man to stand when all he is asking is to be knelt before. This shows a contrast in their managerial approaches. When Leonidas eventually finds out about the betrayal of this twisted and deformed man, he says he hopes F.E.L.T.'s lives forever. Remember, the Spartans kill any babies who are imperfect, so the treachery of this man's parents led to further treachery, suggesting that this eugenics, this culling of the weak, is a right and valid practice. They tried to game the system, they tried to make an exception, and they snuck their deformed baby through, and it led to great, great tragedy. And this tent is exemplary of the opposite approach, which is to embrace the deformed, literally. Yeah. Yes, I think that's a, a very good description of that scene, yes. The baby murder culling of the weak positivity is inferred only from a series of facts. There is also no politics involved in these assertions that perfect physical specimens deserve a glorious life over mere regular men. Absolutely. I mean, as we've come to know on this uh, in this movie, there's fine people on both sides of this conflict. Absolutely. Uh, back in Sparta, Queen Gorgo converses with the deceptive politician Theron, who claims he will ask the council for reinforcements in exchange for the act of roughly forcing himself upon her sexually. He specifically says it will not be over quickly and that she will not enjoy it. Which is a thing he says. Gorgo has a larger role in the film than in the comic book. Here she is raped and then kills her rapist. This is after he declines to call for reinforcements from the council and instead calls her a whore. She then penetrates him with a sword and repeats his words back to him that uh, yeah. it will not be over quickly and she will not, he will not enjoy it. Um, this is more than the character did in the printed version and not less. It is potentially debatable as to whether the inclusion of these new scenes is good for men and women to watch. Should we but debate it now? It is debatable, but we're it not, going, we're not to. going to debate it. Okay. That's fair. That's okay. fair. But I think one thing that is not debatable is that this scene makes this a very good feminist text because she definitely gets revenge. And that, as we know, is good and right. Revenge and on your rapist is a rite of passage for every strong female character. And specifically the fact that All she five of them. Is, is permitted... Obviously, in, in the story, she is permitted. She's not, it's, this is not something that she is allowed to do within the fiction, but in the story, she, the writer permits her to gain her revenge by seizing a penetrative object, therefore having an equal exchange of penetration, mm. which obviously makes these two incidents... <laughs> Also, the hardship she endures ensures we are able to see that happening on screen. So that 
precludes the possibility she might be a Mary Sue. Mm. And also, it's very important so that we know that it is, it's made very, very clear that Theron is a bad guy. But it's really important that we see that scene because otherwise we would assume that he is a, a heroic figure because he is attractive. Honestly, I feel like he was a strong, handsome young man who stayed behind when the other Spartans went to fight. Uh, the only uh, There's only one male Spartan who seems like he's a decent sort, and he's an old man, and he has the excuse that he would have died, although he could potentially have hobbled onto the uh, field and been killed gloriously in battle, mm. which would have justified his existence. Well, given that the, the standard seems to be that Spartan men are soldiers. Yeah. That's all they do. That's everything that they are. They aren't allowed to have any other jobs. And they're better so they're definitely better off not making things. Every man of fighting age in Sparta, one can assume, is in the army. So therefore the council is by necessity going to be made up of people who are too old to fight, except, except, except for Theron, hmm. who is brand new for this film. Mm. Well, very, very well observed and, and drawn from the facts. It reminds me a lot of another uh, excellent text that I can't remember if you've talked about before, the, the, the Fight Phantom Club. Menace? No, I was thinking the the Fight Club, where, you know, oh, if yes. you are capable, you must fight. And, yes. and we know that that is a very important uh, text very pro uh, pro pro community pro masculine text. So. Did the Fight Club age come after the Shrek age? Well, CrossFit Shrek was very important in allowing young men to understand the importance of going to the gym, and that led directly to the Fight Clubs. Okay, okay. It is also possible that there is some kind of angle on ineffectual democracy versus the heroic merits of savage masculine aggression. Every single instance of diplomacy appears to be being positioned as straight-up corruption. Independence at absolutely any cost seems to be a theme. Here we need the audio equivalent of that meme of Talos drinking soda through a straw and saying, but that's none of our business. Second warning, no sound effects. <clears throat> Leonidas tells the rest of the Spartans that he has made dinner reservations for all of them in hell. Very, very good of him, really. They do not react to this prospect, I noted. He shouts it, but nobody cheers. They just maybe they just don't understand how how lavish that banquet hall is or how much how far in advance he had to make those reservations. I mean Black Phillips was the other group already, so just to get that communication would have been very tedious. It's important to note that uh, uh they keep doubling down on the, the Spartans uh I suppose, um, main goals and aims in life. We begin with um, the glory of Sparta. Then a goal on top of that is to die horribly. And then the goal on top of that is to actually go to hell. I have a question with regards to that, actually. And I don't want to impugn the historical accuracy of this film. But did the ancient Greeks have mm. a hell? He would have said Hades. I was curious about that, too. But it does make a kind of sense that they would want to go there, because after all, you're more likely to have more combat and more fights and probably better gyms in Hades than mm. in other places. Although so, Tantalus was told, tonight you dine in hell, over and over again. And never, never bloody did. happened. No. Ah, 
So cruel. That story is just so cruel. That is down to a mean-spirited concierge, is Absolutely. what Absolutely. Tonight, Tantalus, you will sit at the bar endlessly with a beeper that never beeps. It will never mm. beep. And you can keep ordering, but the bartender won't see you. Such a nightmare, really. We can construe that due to the historically accounted for temperature of hell, the thing Leonidas desires most of all is a hot lunch. Leonidas is told once more that if he just kneels to Xerxes, he will get an ox made of gold, a chocolate sphinx, and a crown the size of a hula hoop. Alternately, if he doesn't kneel, Xerxes will use the might of his empire to destroy all of Sparta and wipe it from history. So instead of kneeling, Leonidas defiantly throws his spear at the emperor, cutting his cheek, thus proving this all-powerful leader is not untouchable. All the other Spartans immediately stop using their shields and are thus shot in slow motion with arrows and impaled with spears and swords. Despite being the main target and the greatest threat to Xerxes, Leonidas takes the least punishment possible because he is the toughest of all the men. And I think he roars at the arrows, which deflects them. He he roars like a lion in slow motion and the arrows just drift past him and hit the other Spartans in the eye. I think they're scared. So do I. Uh, And he lives to greet a great hail of more arrows after his small army has fallen. Queen Gorgo is informed of this self-sacrifice for the symbolic snubbing. Wait. This is political. The very nature of the end of this film is inescapably... Political. We literally cannot tell you the cause and effect without invoking politics because this death inspires other Greeks to battle and that is inherently political. Oh, oh, but wait, wait, wait. But they're not talking about politicians or passing any kind of laws or anything. Those Greeks at the end are seeking revenge, which, as we know, isn't something that can be political, right? Okay, you may have you may have saved us. I was going to say we had failed, but you may have actually pulled us from the jaws of death. Yeah, I was sure. I was resigned to the idea that we actually could not talk about three hundred ultimately without invoking politics of some kind. Mm. In that the whole point of the story is to rail against control by powerful foreigners, which in itself is inherently political. And its conclusion, the business of wounding Xerxes is to show he is not a god king. And And the whole point of Delios telling the story... Is is to rally all of Greece. The whole thing. The whole thing is propaganda. Propaganda, yes, certainly. To spur this revenge fantasy. But yes, no, you're right. You can construe that as thousands and thousands of Greeks want revenge for the death of Leonidas. My dead Leonidas. Exactly. He was everybody's family. He was the king. Sudden, furious vengeance against your enemies for a small misdeed is not political. And propaganda. Going to war over a small amount of people being killed and killing a large amount of people... Is not political. No, and propaganda which inspires you to do something that you wanted to do anyway is not propaganda. It's just right. It's It's just just correct. A nudge. Okay, real talk now. Obviously, we aren't continuing this 
fucking format because it's moronic. Oh my god. Oh, <laughs> holy shit. I. Thank oh you, folks, gosh. for bearing with us through oh, it. Oh my goodness. <clears throat> People crying out for entirely, entirely apolitical reviews are either demanding. On the one side, something with no liberal leanings whatsoever to make them feel less guilty for not giving a shit about anyone beyond themselves and their tribe. Or, on the other hand, they're demanding shallow and asinine analyses of media. And there's so many of those out there that these guys are fighting a losing battle in complaining about the ones that aren't. You'll notice that when there's obvious right-wing bias to a show... There are no liberals telling them to keep politics out of their entertainment. And that's because the word political has become a catch-all term for we should probably be moving forward on this matter, but we don't want to. In other words, the same term as politically correct, misapplied for decades to arguments that seem to all boil down to could we all please be a little less shitty? I've seen it written that there are two genders, male and political, two sexualities, straight and and political, two ethnicities, white and political, and so on. We are not going to abandon the very soul of our own show because of the not quite 1% and their loud, obnoxious, not to mention weirdly personal beefs with who we are and what we say. Obviously, you guys like what we do most of the time or we wouldn't have a consistently loyal listenership. But the slightly more uncomfortable aspect of this exercise is that there is a kernel of truth to several of those complaints that entirely tossing out with the bathwater would fail to address. I am a little bit too loud, a little bit too obnoxious and overbearing. I laugh at my own jokes and I get emotional, which can make some people naturally uncomfortable. And my confidence in what I say can easily be construed as smugness or stating opinions as facts. I tend not to add the caveat that they're just opinions because it always feels defensive and somewhat undermining of their own point when I see people do it, not to mention quite patronising. I trust each and every one of you to know that these are just our opinions and that most great films have many possible readings. The truth is that I'm slowly learning all the time. I'm much better as a podcast host now than I was four years ago, and then I was better than I was nine years ago, which was better than I was 12 years ago when I started. I am sure some of the music and some of the tangents are annoying to some people, but those are so integral to what we do and who we are. It's, it's, it's what goes on in my brain that I'm kind of putting out there for you in the editorial. I do this show because I want to talk to you folks. This is my voice, as annoying though it may be sometimes. And that voice includes all the music and sound effects and quirks and asides and little peccadilloes that come with this podcast. So to take them out and stop doing them to please the few, the minor few, would disappoint the many, I believe. And it sucks to be told you're a piece of shit by a dozen rude boy men, but it's also easy to dismiss what they say because of how they say it. And I'm not asking everyone who likes the show to tell me that maybe I could stop interrupting my guests and my wife here and there. In reality, I know. My sharpest critic is myself. But I always want to do better, to be better, to give that internal voice less to criticise. And ultimately, my main aim is to make the best movie podcast on the internet, being both as entertaining and as thought-provoking as possible. 
And it's a weekly challenge that I'm still excited to take on after all these years. And while I don't relish reading those one-star reviews, it would be a bit weird and suspect if what I was saying, the fiercely liberal rhetoric that we are drawing from film after film every week, wasn't pissing anybody off. So if listeners are like me, and then when they hear a show they actively dislike, they will switch it off, delete it from their iPod and walk away, that feels healthy to be able to decisively select what to edit out of your life. If they're unlike me, I guess I get more one-star reviews to balance out and contextualize the majority of folks who are happy to listen every week and who graciously forgive me for my occasionally crappy behavior. You girls, guys, and otherwise, I can only assume, figure, that what you get out of it is worth the occasional cringe. And it is for you that we continue to keep the School of Movies open and flourishing. Now, for a lengthy reading of the poetry of Dylan Thomas over the music of Howard Shaw. (laughs) (laughs) And by the way, this music isn't random. None of my music is random. Everything has thought behind it. 300 is a dirt mall gladiator. And frankly, I think we all deserve one minute of the music of Lisa Gerrard and Hans Zimmer to help us decompress from that fucking nightmare we just went through. And 300 The Book is a repulsively macho, insular, racist, homophobic, yet homoerotic mess by Frank Miller. But 300 The Film takes that same mess, ramps up the oiled, muscular male chest, and adds Zack Snyder's weird treatment of women to the mix, wherein they must be hard and crazy and raped in order to survive the savage world, in order to prove their worth. Snyder easily makes the whole thing his usual treatise on the exceptional demigod-like ubermensch being held back from his rightful glory by naysaying diplomats, saving the world from brown people and perverts. Once again, other opinions are available on YouTube, but you probably shouldn't trust the ones who say that this film is just awesome. They might not be digging deep enough, because there are enough guys like that that this film achieved an unparalleled financial success for Snyder, and coupled with a 2004 Dawn of the Dead remake, this convinced Warner Brothers he was a visionary new director who could deliver them similar successes in future. One Watchmen later, an Owl movie, a Sucker Punch, and an epic series of false starts on the DCEU, and they are now beginning to realise their mistake. This film is more fascist than Triumph of the Will. <laughs> the Lenny like, Riefenstahl film. Yes. The I actual mean, film made as fascist propaganda. 
they literally depict the Spartans as a fatalistic death cult, worshipping the human male physique as heroic, and fight against people of color, people who are disabled, and queer-coded individuals because they are evil for being those things, and they are obviously ethically correct to go out there in their greased-up, gymmed-up, crossfit <laughs> heroic man bodies to just go and thrust their giant homoerotic spears in and out of all the black people they find. It is so uncomfortable to watch today. Mm-hmm. It was uncomfortable to watch in 2006. And it's worth noting as well. Even though he... the moral standards of the time were different. <laughs> it was 2007. They weren't that different. The abs, the the glistening abs that they are so <laughs> determined to throw at your eyes constantly. Um, oh, you got abs in your eyes. It, I, I think it's pretty... I think it's pretty too. It's, it's pretty clear. <laughs> it's pretty clear that the, the, the way that those abs are quite so sculpted and and perfectly described on screen uh-huh. is down to more than just leg day and ab day or crunching. whatever it is, crunching. The, you know, the, it's a film. They use makeup to make the shadows look deeper so that they look more pronounced. They have this, I think we talked about this fairly recently as well, where they, they get, yes, their actors are ripped. And for the record, by the way, they are making actors do way more than is really healthy to achieve those mm-hmm. bodies. Yeah, you, you said this Yeah, the, the, like this, uh, the four-hour-a-day workout that Gerard Butler had to do was coupled with a practical starvation diet because you've, you've literally got to strip as much fat off your body as you can so that the muscles can be clearly seen. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, like, a normal human body has a layer of fat in it. That's how we're designed. It's meant to be there. Ah, uh, do you know who's fat? They're fucking Persians. If you didn't have any fat on your body, you'd freeze to death. I can't tell when you do that accent. I can't tell if you're doing Gerard Butler or CrossFit Shrek. And it's killing me. It's first At this one point, the other. they're one and the same. <laughs> <laughs> you can expect it to come back when we do our Shrek show, folks. But, but oh, it's coming is, soon. This is the thing, and this is my point. Immediately after this film came out, men's magazines the world over were full of do this diet and you can have abs like the guys in 300. Do this exercise and you can have abs like the guys in 300. It is not fucking healthy. Be this Nazi and you can have minds like the Spartans. <laughs> well, okay, that's the, the extension of it. But it just perpetuates this... This idea that if you're going to be this perfect, you've got to hurt yourself. Mm. It is toxic in the extreme. It is not good for people. By the way, we're not like super pro invading Persian Empire with this either. It's it's not too again under the two wrongs make a right rule. But it's the whole yeah. it's the whole how it's all presented. Exactly. Like, we weren't fucking around when we said it's propaganda. The whole thing is like a really grotesque pamphlet from mm. the nineteenth century. Yeah. Well, one of my favorite elements of it is the fact that the entire thing is technically a narration after the fact. Mm-hmm. So, like, all the monsters and stuff that we see probably weren't really there, especially since one of them in particular that, like, almost brings down Leonidas is killed by the narrator. Mm. So Good he's not point. a reliable narrator. Really Luckily, not. I took out Baraka myself. <laughs> <laughs> 
But she, like, yes. Well, they sent a ten foot tall, crazy like man with all of his teeth filed down into fangs, and he almost bit off Leonidas' face. But I, I saved our king. Uh, you're not biting my face off, you bastard. We were set about by like eight, ten large, big lads. <laughs> but no, you're absolutely right, uh, Lauren. And I, I hadn't thought of that. Delios wasn't present in the orgy tent. I think we can safely assume that some of those goats may have been made up. Yeah. Maybe, maybe Some bullshit may have been in this story. Also, Absolutely. like, when he and Leonidas part, part ways, everything that happens after that mm. is just what Delios is making up to tell the Greeks to get them into a frenzy. Mm-hmm. Two other things. One, oh, no, not those Athenian boy lovers. For God's sake. Was, like, historically speaking, Spartans were Spartans just as... did it too. Yeah, there we go. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They, they fucking love fucking each other. It was, oh, my God. Oh, I'm sorry, we're not allowed to swear. Oh, wait. I don't know, we are. We, we, we've we decided are we're scrapping all of those stupid <laughs> fucking rules. Oh, my God. Like, oh, not all of them. A couple of them, like I said, I can be a bit overbearing. And there's a couple yeah. of other things that uh, I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can watch. The other thing, though... Most Greek legends are actually cautionary tales about acting like a complete fucking macho dick. Yes. Am I wrong? Yeah, well, no, that's what so I So this mean, doesn't right? even fit with that. Mm. It, this is about the glory of Sparta and there was no tragedy involved whatsoever, yeah. apart from there, there that was... Leonidas didn't get to carry on fucking his wife six ways that from Sunday. That moment there, by the way, when um, the captain's son is killed and he has this just this look of sheer horror on his face as he confronts Leonidas mm. and he implies that storming in here like a headstrong fool is maniacal and is going to get them all killed and that that is a bad thing and they hold that moment for almost like a second and a half and then he does the whole my heart is full of hate well good let's get on with it then good use it all we can do is hate there's something really frightening about being so tribal so fixated on the way of life that you've been taught that you can't respect your enemies. Wouldn't you want to go up against people that you can in some way respect? I know I do. Kind of getting sick of cartoon monsters. And it's just so damaging because, you know, like you said, the the Persian army is not exactly in the in the right here, but the entire film is framed that the Spartans are heroes, that they are the heroic, like, archetype um platonic ideal of masculinity and it's just so toxic to take that on especially in face of like literally everything else Mm. this this is just one of the most misogynist ableist queerphobic like the, the spartans literally build a wall to keep out invading brown people mm-hmm like it's so poignant today it's uncomfortable yeah there's plenty of films in fact where uh, uh, people are make walls and they're shit walls and don't work like pacific rim uh and ultimately walls symbolically are like we grow as people when walls come tumbling down Mm. that that whole like i was a young teen when the berlin wall came down and that was seen as something that everyone was celebrating around the fucking world and, you know, we're watching a film where it's like, hey, we got to build a wall to keep them out. 2019, what have you done to me? Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it's been many, many long years. We'll, we'll just have to gear up for the next few. 
Okay, so uh, any more on 300? Because I'm fucking sick to my stomach. Uh, there's so little to this film. It's so shocking to me how little there is that's not propaganda. And there might be something there to talk about how it is both diegetic and literal propaganda, but I think we probably covered that. Yeah. We covered <sighs> it with sarcasm. I we sprayed it with sarcasm. Glazed it. I, I don't I don't even know what sarcasm is, Alex. I was incredibly truthful and forthright the entire time. <laughs> we I were trying it. really fucking hard not to come off as smug and we probably overshot about a oh, hundred times. I think honestly the only note that I made that was probably worth including at this point is that uh, Snyder uses the same colour palette for the Spartans as McDonald's. I'm loving it. Don't know about you. <laughs> Alright, there's just time to thank the real heroes here. And that's our $15 sponsors on Patreon this month. A big Scottish thank you to Joel Robinson, Benjamin Buddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Connor Kennedy, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, John Clayson, Tyler Long, Joe Gesieger, Greg Downing, Tim Rosinski, Christopher Wolf, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finn Barnacle, Jameson Wright, Mark Lux, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dackler, and Lorraine Chesham. And I preferred Gerard Butler when he was really stoic. And when he played the Phantom of the Opera, that's a surprisingly intimidating role. Goes without saying we're doing a How to Train Your Dragon trilogy at some point pretty soon. Anyway, uh, this has been 300. Uh, Lauren, have you got anything that you would like to uh, promote? Not a bit, but thank you for having someone so political on your show. Since, of course, <laughs> oh, Lauren, you are all kinds of political. Yeah. Oh my God, my gender and sexuality are both marked political on my driver's license, so it's really important. <laughs> Um, uh, can anyone recommend a film that's a bit like 300, but much, much better? I mean, I still like Sucker Punch more than this film. And you mentioned it earlier. So do I. Like, I think Sin City is better, a better film than this, too, if you want the, a similar aesthetic. I haven't seen it for a long, long time, but... Uh, yeah. uh, I'm, I'm going to say Wonder Woman. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yep. that's good. In fact, Zack Snyder's presence as producer on Wonder Woman had me really fucking worried. And I think rightly so. Uh, you could say Watchmen in terms of Zack Snyder comic book adaptations. Still a better film than this. Oh, 100%. And heck, if you watch the uh, the animated black uh, freighter thing, you get Gerard Butler talking mm. in it too. So you even get CrossFit Shrek. Okay, uh, I got one more, and that is a Neil Marshall film from the uh, director of uh, Rise of the Blood Queen featuring Hellboy, uh, featuring both Fassbender as the uh, uh, lead and also uh, Dominic West, uh, and that is Centurion. Which is a low-budget, very pared-down, Romans versus ancient Picts 
survival horror behind enemy lines in ancient Britain. It only cost 12 million and it made 6 million, so it was a fucking failure. Uh, but it's also bloody and there's a lot more nuance to it. And, and actually, another one that comes to mind, um, since, you know, the whole hate for classical films and such, um, the original Spartacus. Is, mm. I think it holds up. I haven't seen it in a little while, but the last time I watched it, it actually held up pretty well. And it's like literally about similar kind of things, but not horribly fascist. Yeah, there was a whole period of swords and sandals type uh, Hollywood epics, uh, which you could pick and choose from most of them and they'd still be better than 300. Amen to that. Okay. Stay tuned for the bloopers on this episode where we could not hold it together. It required us to be totally deadpan and sometimes that was impossible. So uh, I have been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out. He fucks her six ways from Sunday. (laughs) Hang on, let me try again. Which is, of course, showing his virility and the fact that he never skips leg day. Absolutely, and it was six ways. Or Peter's day. It was. Oh, well, well, that's not a dick joke, folks. No, no, no. That's an observation. (laughs) What's Peter's day? It was six ways, I counted. I lifted Stelios on this thing. Erect and erect for our uh, viewing interest. The moon is... This is uh, killing me. This is killing me. One Spartan holds a musical... (laughs) Sorry, one second. I can't, I can't do this. Pinch my hand. One Spartan holds a musical instrument composed of two sizable flutes aloft. (laughs) And enthusiastically (laughs) blood. If nothing else, Honest Trailers have already said this, so it's like not even new ground. Men playing two flutes at the same time. Those philosophers and boy lovers, and everyone laughs. Yep. yep. Even though they had like institutional pederasty in 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 Sparta. Everywhere. So we're just pretending. Institutional like, pederasty in Sparta. Someone was on Wikipedia. He absolutely today. was. <laughs> but the thing is, though, like you know, you just to go out of your way to say they're gay and we're not is yeah, so fucking s- dumb. Stupid. The Spartans, led by their leader CrossFit Shrek, <laughs> <laughs> fight more Persians amid us. <laughs> <laughs> Such a shame we're not a video podcast. Oh, CrossFit Shrek is such a... Um... F.E.L.T.'s, the deformed Spartan hunchback, is led into Xerxes' orgy tent filled with women with deformities and a goat who plays the banjo. <laughs> to, to be fair, he's just trying to live deliciously. <laughs> And if you'd like to hear more about 300, listen to the We Hate Movies episode, episode 300, as it happens, where they coined the term Baby Inspector. My mother fucked the Baby Inspector so that I may may live. Oh, my God. What a sentence. My mother fucked the Baby Inspector. That would be great if Leonidas just goes to the captain like... Remind me when we get back, I gotta talk to the baby inspector. <laughs> I mean, like, what are we doing here? Hey, uh, look at this guy, I, I, baby inspector. I, I under- look at this guy. <laughs> I understand a few B's, not an F. <laughs> Thank you, Stone Pony. We love you, New Jersey. We are my mom. Fuck the baby inspector. Good night. <laughs> this guy can't fit through a fucking door. I mean, come on.
Come on, baby inspector. Come on. <laughs> Apparently, they they went into exile over this. Sure, like the, the father you would have to. <laughs> so this inbred swine has to, has a shield from his father and like his old Spartan robe, and he's like, "Oh, Leonidas, I may be a mutant hunchback that probably didn't even exist back then." <laughs> Well, no know. one's ever existed no, like no this. No one's ever, right? Like, this, this is the fucking elephant man. Dude, yeah. he looks like an 85-year-old toxic Avenger. Yeah. And they push this wall of corpses over, but it just falls on the one guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's hours of work to crush one well, man. I'm like, I'm like Kevin from Home Alone, but it takes fucking forever. <laughs> 